Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. The score for Tron is as technically complex as it is beautiful. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we're continuing our download of the music of Tron, a 1982 film by Walt Disney Productions, written and directed by Steven Lisberger, with a film score by Wendy Carlos. On the last episode, we got a full rundown of Tron and how it was ahead of its time, and perhaps that this was why the movie wasn't a smash hit in 1982. But we also discussed how this fact parallels the history of the synthesizer, which, until Wendy Carlos came along, was being used to create avant-garde, almost, quote, ugly music mid-20th century. But Carlos gave the synthesizer life by producing an album called Switched On Bach in 1968 and created the first chart-topping classical album in history. From there, she blazed her own trail as a film composer, writing music for Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange and The Shining, as well as producing her own groundbreaking albums of original music. By the time Tron's soundtrack producer approached Wendy Carlos, she was already well-known in the film world for being able to produce synthesized scores. But perhaps by this point, Her own success had pigeonholed her as an arranger of other composers' music, such as Bach for Switched on Bach, 
Beethoven for A Clockwork Orange, and Berlioz for The Shining, respectively. In a vintage article written by Robert Moog of the famous Moog Synthesizer, Carlos said the following of her conditions when it came to scoring Tron. Quote, As I thought about it, it became clear to me that the part of the score for the computer world should be as full of color as possible. I wanted to use a combination of symphony orchestra and synthesizer for the computer world, and just a string orchestra for the real world. I felt that symphony orchestra in combination with synthesizer could be a strong factor in the film. It was a natural, simpatico idea that exactly complemented the way the film combined live actors and video graphics. In addition, this appeared to be an opportunity for me to break out and do a substantial amount of orchestral composition. I heard the score as a blending throughout of electronic and acoustic colors with no harsh, artificial separation of timbres. I am trained and experienced in orchestration, I enjoy composing for orchestra, and I wanted to enter the project with my competence in orchestral writing acknowledged, end quote. So, Wendy Carlos sent a demo of her ideas, and the deal for her to do the entire score, not just the synth elements, was finalized. Boy, there are a few things to cover in that quote alone, and we're going to go ahead and get started by looking at some of the music cues very closely. But first, it's important to know a few basic facts about this score. Number one, according to a November 1982 article in Keyboard Magazine, the original plan was to pre-record all of the synth parts first, and then have the orchestra play along with those synth parts. Fact number two, the budget was very tight. This meant that the entire score was recorded in two days. The first day at the Royal Albert Hall in London with a full symphony orchestra, as well as a pipe organ recording, this was a specific request from director Steven Lisberger, which, in my opinion, reemphasizes the importance of the religious or spiritual overtones of the programs in the computer world in Lisberger's mind. And then on the second day, the recording was going to be a smaller ensemble in an unspecified different location. I actually don't know where they did the uh, recording the second day, but it was a smaller ensemble. Fact number three. Because of the super tight schedule... Carlos had to abandon the idea of fact number one, of having all of her synth parts pre-recorded, as she didn't have time to do that and prepare for the orchestral recording session. The schedule was too tight. So the orchestra played without the synth references in many cases. They were just playing along to a click track. Fact number four. Wendy Carlos wasn't happy with the recordings because of how rushed they were, because of lack of rehearsal because of things like disagreement over microphone placement. For example, she wanted close miking on the instrument so that she could then go back and manipulate them further back home during the mix, especially considering the synth layering that still needed to take place, whereas the engineer of the recordings used a more traditional approach of miking the room, in other words, putting the mics farther away from the instruments, in order to capture more of an ambient, natural sound. In that same Keyboard Magazine article, Carlos offers this comparison, quote, We were only allowed two days of orchestral recording, which, for the sheer amount and complexity of music that I had written, was inadequate. The orchestra that recorded the Star Wars score, for instance, was in session for nearly two weeks, end quote. So, 
That leads us to fact number five. Wendy Carlos's use of synth in Tron is more than just a stylistic choice. In many instances, none of which we're necessarily privy to, but can be fun to guess at, she used synths to cover recording mistakes. Here's another quote from that Keyboard Magazine article. Quote, I used the synthesizer in three ways, Wendy says. First, I added tracks where synthesizer colors were needed. Second, I doubled lines that I thought were played poorly. Third, I put in lines that had been missed altogether by the orchestra, or were totally off mic, or improperly recorded, end quote. It's worth noting, by the way, that Carlos praised the musicians and team that she worked with regularly and blamed any or all of these issues on lack of time and lack of budget. So, knowing all of these facts, we're going to dig in. I want to start with a cue called Break-In for Strings, Flutes, and Celesta. Let's take a listen. This is done with a smaller ensemble of acoustic instruments, recorded on a different stage on day two, separate from the main recording that was done at the Royal Albert Hall. Listen to that delay on those high string lines. I mean, this is definitely a stylized mix rather than just a traditional room sound. Even when using a smaller ensemble, this demonstrates to my ear that Carlos is making creative choices in the mix stage beyond just adding a room reverb. She's painting textures. She's giving cohesion to the overall score. that there is no synth in this track, but those high string lines feel a bit like synth textures because of how they're treated in the mix. Now, if we move on to the cue, the wormhole, we're going to notice a couple of really interesting things. Let's just go ahead and take a listen. Okay, we start off with the orchestra. But listen to what happens once Flynn is zapped with a laser. Huge, chromatic, descending synthesizer line, along with the orchestra going crazy. And is that a ticking clock that I hear? And now we're into the wormhole. 
A couple of things to think about here. That's a synth part in a music cue that's in the real world, even though the score was originally conceived as having just an orchestra in the real world or a string orchestra in the real world, as I said before, and then more of a synth type of sound in the computer world. So why is there a synth featured so prominently here in this scene that takes place in the real world? Well, it could be because this is Flynn's entrance to the computer world as he's being digitized before our eyes. Or it could also be a very practical reason. It's a complex musical passage, and perhaps this line just didn't come out strongly in the recording, or maybe it didn't even come out at all. So Carlos either augmented or replaced it entirely with a Moog synth to give us that part. Either way, it's very effective, but the presence of synth is worth noting after just having an all-orchestral cue with the break-in just moments before. And that ticking clock. It's interesting what's revealed when listening to this cue in isolation. Because the sound effects are pretty hot in the final mix during this scene, so it's really hard to hear at all in the movie. But when you're just listening to this on the soundtrack, that clock is a really neat choice. I personally like to think that this is the physicist in Carlos coming to the surface. After all, the movie kind of hints at the relativity of time between worlds, as if the whole journey in the computer world takes place in mere seconds in the real world. Flynn seems to come back at the same moment he left when he returns to the real world at the end of the movie. Perhaps the ticking clock in this cue is Carlos's demonstration of that phenomenon. Now, moving forward in the movie, into the computer world, let's listen to a great example of how effective the blending of orchestral and synth sounds really can be, not just sonically, but as a storytelling device as well. The first time Flynn is forced to play in the games... He's marched into an arena where he plays a modern version of High Ally with another hapless, doomed program. We hear these military drums as they're marched out into the game. cool combination of synth drone and marching snare drums. And I actually think there was some synth snare in there as well. These drums clearly paint a sonic picture of execution or forced gladiatorial combat. This is great storytelling with music. You know, if you listen to the director's commentary on the DVD of this scene, you'll actually hear that Stanley Kubrick's gladiator film Spartacus which I can't wait to talk about on this show someday, by the way. Anyway, Spartacus was a huge influence on Steven Lisberger, the director, and on Tron. One of the uh, inspirations of Tron is the, is the movie Spartacus. And um, they, there's quite a few similarities to the uh, persecuted people who had to fight in the gladiatorial games. This game, of course, was inspired by Pong and Hylai, <laughs> and then, as the game becomes deadly, the stabbing synth chords take over. Mm-hmm. 
And now for a brief intermission. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. We return now to the soundtrack show. There are several reasons why Carlos probably felt that the orchestra wasn't as rehearsed as it needed to be. One is that she had invented a computer system for the scoring of Tron that adjusted the tempo of each given cue to fit the length of certain shots, and then click tracks were generated off of these changing tempos. Now, I'm simplifying this computer program for time's sake, but in practical terms, what that means is that an orchestra couldn't just feel it. You know, they couldn't just follow the conductor and kind of naturally speed it up or slow it down at random in order to hit a sync point here and there. Everything with Tron was very, very exact. It had to be, as synth tracks were going to be added later and would need to follow the same tempo changes in lockstep. But the other reason for the orchestral recording having problems that Carlos points out is that this score is very complex. Harmonically, melodically, absolutely. But there's also a unifying complexity to Tron that I have to point out. Almost all of the cues in Tron, especially in the computer world, are in an odd time signature or rhythm. Now, we've talked about rhythm before on this show. Most Western music is in 4-4, what is called common time. One, two, three, four. Usually in pop music, you put something, uh, you put the two and four, which is called a backbeat. One and two and three and four. The one and two and means you could subdivide into eight. One and two and three and four. Or 16, one and a two and a three and a four and a... Um, anyway, that means that there are four beats in every phrase. Or if you subdivide, you can have 8 beats or 16 beats, etc. It's nice. It's standard. It's easy. The score for Tron heavily utilizes time signatures that are based off of odd numbers, particularly 3, 5, and 7. In fact, most notably 7. It's everywhere in Tron. That means that there are 7 beats in each phrase giving a bit of a rhythmic jump or unpredictability to the score. Seven is like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You know, that is oftentimes subdivided into groups of uh, three or two. So you one, two, three, four, one, two, three, da, do, ba, do, ba, do, do. You could do three and then two and two. Da, do, do, ba, do, ba, do, da, do, do, ba, do, ba, do. You could even do two, three, and two. Da, do, da, do. You know, you could do that kind of thing. Anyway, when we first hear seven in the score for Tron, we first hear it when Clue is running from recognizers at the top of the movie. Let's take a listen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 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 We hear it again as the light cycles escape the game grid, as tank programs are activating to chase them down. 
again as Flynn drives a busted recognizer through the digital neighborhood. you believe it, the anthemic main theme from Tron is also actually in seven. Let's take a listen and I'll count this out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. One, two, one, two, one, two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three. You get the idea. By the way, Wendy Carlos's website reveals to us that that theme was difficult for her to write and actually came to her in a dream. Quote, I recall that several good ideas came to me during several days, and you'll hear them in the score and on this original score album. One that had been eluding my best efforts, though, was a main theme for the score, something that would fit the anthem idea in the screenplay, and also provide the melody and chord changes for the Tron love theme. You may know the frustrations yourself. The harder you try sometimes only makes matters seem worse. I decided to give up on it, head off to bed, as it was nearly dawn. Something would come to me when I was rested, as it usually does, I hoped. No sooner had I tucked myself into bed and turned out the lights that the answer just drifted into my inner ear, unbidden. As I was about to nod off, this was annoying. But then, many of my best ideas, probably 30 to 40% of them, do seem to pop into my head when it's most inconvenient. In such cases, you actually hear the final music in your head, pretty nearly in a finished form, with the full orchestra or other instruments playing. A private, steerable jukebox, What it's like subjectively is nearly the same sensation as if you were recalling some music you'd heard before, complete and auditory, as if you were only remembering it, not creating it on the spot. If you've read biographies of composers, you discover that this is a fairly common happenstance. With several years of practice, a reasonable musical talent, and some skill, it's surprising how well your inner ear will develop. Composing, then, is very often a matter of working out the details— double-checking the notes and combinations, and writing it all down in some reasonably accurate way. It feels as if you are doing musical dictation, 
which isn't far off the mark. Technically, what's occurring is that the right hemisphere, the musico-spatial creative side, is steering, while the left, analytical editorial language side, is putting it all down rationally, while also blue-penciling the weaker elements, prodding the right side to try another variation when a first impulse comes up short. End quote. Just wonderful stuff. Brilliant story. And it's true. I remember reading about how the opening of Wagner's Ring Cycle came to Wagner in a dream, for example. But moving on, back to the other themes and other rhythms in Tron. One that pops up every once in a while is the meter of five. Here's where I first heard it in Tron. As Tron, Flynn, and Ram are drinking this pure energy water during a down moment in the chase. Let's take a listen. This is interesting because at first it sounds like it's in seven, but then there's that additional three beats at the end of each phrase giving you 10 beats total. That gives you a steady pulse of five. One and two and three and four and five and one and two and three and four and five and one and two and three and four and five. To make it even more complex, the main theme which is in seven, which we just discussed, kicks in over the top of that. You've got this seven-four melody, da da da, ba ba bum, with rests and elongated notes added to complete the melody over three times through the five ostinato or repeating rhythmic line, just enough to turn a fourteen-beat phrase two times through the seven melody into a 15-beat phrase, so it finishes on the third time through of the 5-4 rhythmic ostinato. Complex indeed. Okay, so it's time for more mental gymnastics. This next piece is probably my favorite piece in all of Tron. It's called Tron Scherzo. And before we play it, I should give you a little context for what the word scherzo refers to in orchestral music. The word scherzo literally means joke in Italian. The history of a musical scherzo goes like this. In larger orchestral works, like sonatas or symphonies, The second or third movement would often be what's called a minuet, which is a triple or three-metered piece. A one, two, three, one, two, three, like a waltz almost. Oftentimes, at court, minuets were played as dance music. A scherzo started off as a very, very fast version of this. One, two, three, 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 etc. 
Certainly not something you could dance to. I mean, your partner and their aristocratic wardrobe would go flying across the room. So it was kind of a joke, as it were. A scherzo. But later, scherzo as a movement in larger pieces became the standard, especially by the time we get to the greats like Beethoven and Tchaikovsky. So, Wendy Carlos wrote a scherzo for Tron. Essentially, all that means is that it's in a very fast triple meter, or beat of three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Very fast. Let's take a listen. We start with this synth line, which is kind of like this trumpet fanfare or call to action in a gladiatorial arena. But then the triple meter really pulses with excitement as the harmony chromatically shifts backwards and forwards. Let's break this piece down on the piano. I mean, this is not your average melody. That's not even a chord. That's not a major or minor chord. You know, this is a wonderfully melodic but totally complex at the same time melody. We're not just talking about spelling out major and minor chords here. We're talking about stacked chords or, or even polychords. Sometimes even what almost amounts to tone clusters, like this thing in the bass. Yet it's totally memorable, even hummable. Even this bit right here. You can imagine hearing that in a gladiatorial arena, but it's so twisted and modern. I mean, if you were to actually play all those notes together... Wendy Carlos just absolutely shines here. But then the scherzo isn't over after that. Towards the end of the scherzo, she introduces another rhythmic, tension-building ostinato, or pattern, with this really cool bass line that inspires dread, but with a twist. So every once in a while, in this triple meter, she skips a beat. She gives us three, 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 then suddenly two, and then back to three, three. Or you could argue that she goes back and forth between six, six, and five, however you want to subdivide it. But you get what I'm saying. Here, let me demonstrate by playing a bit. skips at all? It really adds to the tension and unpredictability, the danger that our characters are in. Let's play it again and I'll count it out for you. 
See, you hear that skip in there? You know, when it comes to the soundtrack show, I try my best to make this show have a balance of depth and accessibility to non-musicians. But in this case, I had to just get into some nitty-gritty detail about rhythm just so we could appreciate the precision that was applied to this score. No wonder the live orchestra had trouble capturing this in less than two days. Wendy Carlos wasn't joking when she mentioned the amount of complex and precise music that they had to perform. The soundtrack show will continue in a moment. We return now to the soundtrack show. There are a few other things that I want to mention about Tron. One is that there are two pieces that were written for the movie by the band Journey, still fronted by Steve Perry at the time, who were hugely popular in the early 80s. The first track, called 1990s Theme, which is kind of this futuristic guitar-driven instrumental, goes like this. It's only briefly heard in the arcade at the top of the movie as source or background music. All right, give me room. Here we go. The second track that they wrote for the movie is called Only Solutions and is this great rockin' tune with a catchy melodic hook. And for Journey, it almost has a Rush-inspired rock vibe to it with the bass, drums, and guitar at the top. Let's check it out. tune. But again, in the movie proper, it's barely on in the background at Flynn's Arcade as a source cue. I don't know what you ever saw in that guy anyway. I love him for his brains. <laughs> oh, don't put any change in the meter. We're going to need it for the game. Boy, I haven't been here in a long time. Hey, Barbie, 
Perhaps this is why the filmmakers chose to cut the song into the end credits as well, since it's barely in the movie proper. Unfortunately, this meant that we lost a big chunk of the movie's end credit sequence that was fully penned by Wendy Carlos, but this was made available on the soundtrack release and was even on the DVD as a bonus feature. This is actually a good segue into another subject. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the sound design in Tron. It is phenomenal. We could do a whole show just on the sounds that they created for this movie. From the recognizers, to the light cycles, to the identity discs, to the solar sailor, this movie has incredible, unique sound. It's funny, I mentioned in the Super Mario Brothers episode that early video games, like Super Mario Brothers, had the sound effects and music all made by one person, even using the same synth inside the Nintendo machine in that case. And that was composer Koji Kondo. But in the case of Tron, just like many other movies, the sound design and the music were two totally separate creative endeavors, with one team on the west coast of the United States and another working out of the east coast. Wendy Carlos lamented that she wasn't able to be present for the final mix of the film as she was still too busy preparing cues in parallel. As a result, there wasn't anyone advocating for the film score when it came to its overall loudness relative to the sound effects in the movie, at least according to Carlos. This is a very common tension on these kinds of projects, as there's always a dance between featuring effects versus featuring music. The effects folks always want loud effects to feel like you're really immersed in the action. The music folks want the music to lead the audience's ear so that they really feel the full emotional impact of each scene. There's not necessarily a wrong or right answer. Hey, that's what directors are for, and they are the ones who end up making the final call. But there is one case in Tron that's worth pointing out. Besides the omitted music in the end credit sequence, Wendy Carlos wrote a whole musical cue for the light cycle sequence. Yet, in the end, they chose to omit it and just lead with sound effects only. The effects are spectacular, by the way. So cool sounding. It's easy to understand the decision, especially considering how fast the sequence moves. It's, it's immersive. It's dangerous. It's one of the visceral highlights of the movie's computer graphic sequences. Let's take a listen.
you know, Carlos's score has proven to be breathtaking again and again as well. So who's to say we wouldn't have loved it? Though the piece mixed in here with what I'm about to play isn't final, final music, it was reconstructed for the DVD so we can get an idea of what this sequence might have sounded like were it to be in the final movie with music. What do you think? Do you agree with the cut? Or did the music add something for you? Of course, looking through the lens of time and having lived with this movie for so many years, I, of course, prefer it as it is, just sound effects with music sneaking in later. But these things are so completely subjective. And I love comparing the two because it offers a look at what could have been. And it also gives us an insight to the creative process and the hard work that went into these sequences that ultimately were abandoned. And you know, speaking of sounds, Wendy Carlos made some pretty cool sounds herself. There are some really spectacular synth moments that she designed. She did things like detuning certain passages. She added these chromatic slides that aren't even really possible with acoustic instruments in a full orchestra. And then sometimes she just made some crazy uh, digital textures. Here's one that's totally frightening. This is in the movie when the MCP gives Sark all of his power and Sark grows into a massive giant. Wendy Carlos gives us spooky textures from not only the UCLA choir and the London Orchestra, but listen to these amazing synth sounds as the giant's footsteps lumber towards Tron coming up behind him. <laughs> With so much great work in Tron, it's a disappointment to me that it wasn't a bigger movie in 1982. But obviously, the story doesn't end there. 
as we have a sequel with another amazing soundtrack by Daft Punk and an incredible animated series. And in the irony to end all ironies, the movie Tron was outdone by its own creation, a Bally Midway arcade video game of Tron also released in 1982. In fact, you can see the arcade cabinet in the movie at the beginning with that iconic blue joystick. Tron, the movie, cost $17 million to make. It only grossed $4 million on opening weekend and did a total of $33 million at the box office. It was considered a financial flop by Disney. By contrast, the video game made $44 million by 1983 just from kids plunking quarters into the machines at the arcade. The game was a huge, huge hit. You know, I was one of those kids. I loved that game. And months after seeing the movie, I was still humming the music largely because of the video game, which was part of my weekly life for a couple of years at the arcade. I mean, the soundtrack really wasn't complete until the 2001 release. So I would be remiss if I didn't play a bit of the Bally Midway arcade game here because this is how I lived with Wendy Carlos's music as a kid for the majority of the time, week after week, in the arcade. I could go on and on about the score for Tron and the impact that Wendy Carlos has had on film scores, but we'll save that for now, as there's so much more to cover in the world of soundtracks. For more information on Wendy Carlos, I recommend heading to her website and supporting soundtracks by picking up copies of her music. You won't be disappointed. I want to close with an email that I received from Alex. He writes, Dear David, thank you for providing such a rich learning experience on your podcast. I always come away with some new tidbit of music. Like you, I found orchestral soundtracks through John Williams. My earliest movie memory was humming the Superman theme after seeing it when I was only five. I probably drove my mom crazy. Then later, someone gave me a special edition vinyl of the E.T. soundtrack with a still from the movie printed on both sides of the vinyl. I wish I still had that. I'm sure it's a collector's dream. The Superman soundtrack is still my favorite John Williams soundtrack of all time. The leaving home theme is so lush, so heartbreaking, so full to the brim that I sometimes lay in the dark on my couch and cry just from the music alone. I started to really love the, quote, soundiness of some soundtracks, music making where melody and harmony seem to take a back seat to the sound of a noise, where it seems like atmosphere is more important. I'm thinking of soundtracks like Passion by Peter Gabriel or Arrival by Johan Johansson. Yes, there are themes and repeated melodies, but to me at least, it feels like the composers are more driven by creating a unique and appropriate soundscape. Think about the unique sounds that Hans Zimmer used for the Joker's and Catwoman's motifs in those two soundtracks. What do you think? Will you get into discussions of soundiness? Back in the day, my band teacher told me about three qualities of music. Tone, the place on the scale. Duration, the rhythm. And timbre. I've heard you talk about tone and duration, but not timbre. 
I'm not sure I really understood the concept other than timbre is what makes a voice sound like a voice and not a clarinet, even though they might be playing the exact same note. Or that's how I understood it at the time. I'm not sure if that's even right. Thank you again. I always look forward to your show, Alex. Thanks for writing, Alex. And yeah, timbre or the tone or quality of sound that makes music is incredibly, incredibly important. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes. Besides the two aspects of music that I have discussed, pitch and rhythm, timbre is an equally important third part. Each instrument in an orchestra, for example, has its own unique timbre. Your voice sounds different from my voice because they have their own unique timbre. No vocal instrument is built exactly the same, so it doesn't sound exactly the same. Violins have a different timbre than clarinets, who have a different timbre than oboes versus French horns or trumpets. A lot of it has to do with the quality of the sound. Is it boomy? Is it nasal or reedy? Is it shimmery, smooth, or harsh? But another aspect is how a sound starts. It's attack or transient. The attack on a trumpet sounds different than the attack on a clarinet, for example. And that really helps our brain to define their differences or their timbres. You know, I could do a whole show on timbre. Maybe I should. This is just a quick overview, and hopefully that helps get your ears tuned into the differences in instruments. And it's certainly relevant to this discussion on Tron, as timbre is a huge part of what Wendy Carlos pioneered for synths. Part of her genius of her electronic album Switched on Bach, for example, is that she needed to figure out how to make sounds or timbres that were unique to the synth, but stayed true to the spirit of the Bach piece. So she wasn't trying to make her own horns, her own woodwinds, her own strings, but creating something new that was in the spirit of those things and augmenting them with all new timbres to give us something totally new. If you go back and listen to the Tron score, listen to what synths she chose to add to existing orchestral lines. Their timbre will tell you a lot about her decisions. Thanks for writing, Alex. And thanks to all of you for your emails and comments on social media. I read every single one. And I sincerely appreciate it. Please drop us an email at the soundtrack show at howstuffworks.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at David W. Collins. Thank you. Thank you.